Welcome to On Cities with host Carrie Pennebod. Over the next hour, you'll learn from Carrie and her guests how the design of the built environment shapes the quality of our lives. Now, here is Carrie. Welcome to On Cities. My name is Carrie Pennebad, and this show is dedicated to the design of our cities. Cities are amongst the greatest of human endeavors. They are the backdrop for our lives and the legacy that we leave for future generations to inhabit. I've come to understand that the quality of our daily lives, our health, the health of our planet, our sense of connection, and even our happiness is directly influenced by the design of our built environment. And yet we seldom discuss what makes great cities and how can we work together to design a better world. Today, I am delighted to be speaking with acclaimed author and architect, Carolyn Steele, on the topic of food and cities. The the feeding of our cities may have greater social and physical impacts on us and our planet than anything else that we do. Yet few of us living in modern cities are conscious of the process and its effects on our physical environment and our well-being. In her award-winning books, Hungry City, How Food Shapes Our Lives, and Cytopia, How Food Can Save the World, Carolyn has chronicled the history of food production and distribution, the challenges of feeding our growing cities sustainably, and her vision for a new way of thinking about food and its role in creating more resilient, equitable, and joyful urban futures. Carolyn, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be with you. Carolyn, I read that your early one of your early childhood experiences was working at your grandparents' hotel, and this seems to have shaped your understanding of architecture. How so? Yes, I didn't actually work officially. I mean, I was only a small child, but um, my grandparents had a you know a very nice um, hotel in Bournemouth, which is a resort on the south coast of the UK, and they had a very good um, kitchen. Um, which was fairly unusual in those days, you know, because I'm going back to the 60s, um, post-war Britain. And, um, you know, I think we'd kind of, uh, at that point in the UK, pretty much lost our own food culture (laughs) almost completely. Um, So eating well was quite unusual. Um, But as a small child, I remember being really fascinated by the contrast between the kind of the backstage areas of the hotel, which were kind of chaotic and noisy and running with steam and people running around shouting and obviously amazing cooking smells coming out of the kitchen. And then you go through this green baize door um, into the public areas of the hotel where, of course, the guests were all sitting around drinking cups of tea or nibbling cake and there was antique furniture and, you know, sort of lovely, relaxed atmosphere. And I just remember as a small child being fascinated by that transition, you know, that moment, which is just a door's width thick, separating these two worlds and a sense of power almost, you know, or magic and being able to just move from one to the other. And it's extremely theatrical. Um, And I guess I'll never know whether that's the experience that actually, you know, sowed the seeds in me of wanting to become an architect, um, or indeed sowed the seeds in me of wanting to think about, read about, and write about food. But, you know, if you wanted to post-rationalise 
my experience, I guess, then you, you could definitely find the seeds of both of those things in that very early experience. What a wonderful experience that must have been. And you're right, yeah. because architecture, you know, involves, um, you know, the kind of foreground spaces, let's say, you know, the spaces for the general public, mm-hmm. but then all, all of these kind of invisible structures um, and back of house spaces that exactly. make, make those spaces possible. So um, I, you know, who knows how our early childhood experiences <laughs> shaped our lives, but um, that sounds like a great uh, way to spend an early childhood. Uh, well, we could transition really to your uh, formidable work on food and cities. And you have um, your fantastic award-winning book, Hungry City, How Food Shapes Our Lives. And, and this book chronicles the relationship of food and cities, beginning with man's fundamental connection to the land, something that you argue we've largely lost in contemporary society. And this book traces the relationship of food and the making of cities back to antiquity. And you cite ancient Rome as an important example of a city that had to contend with the question of food at a scale that has exceeded most cities in history. Um, Can you tell us how ancient Rome fed itself? Yeah, I mean, with great difficulty is the shorthand. Um, Thank thank you for all of that. I mean, I, I... It's been a strange journey, um, as I say, sort of moving from thinking as a young child I wanted to be an architect and then ending up writing about food. But, of course, food through the lens of architecture in cities or vice versa. And, um, you know, I I think what this kind of approach has really given me is a sort of, which does directly relate back to the the earlier question um, about, you know, what I learnt as a child of, you know, the experience of being in the hotel is that, you know, when we live in cities, there's this kind of image or, you know, it's like the front of house image is that cities are somehow independent and they can feed themselves and they're autonomous and, you know, everything's very efficient and, you know, cars and trains are whizzing around and and all the rest of it. And certainly as an inhabitant of a modern city, you know, sort of dropping by the supermarket on your way home to pick up dinner and, you know, often that will be a ready meal because you're quote unquote too busy to cook. And if you think about the hidden places, landscapes, people and so on that sort of are just just back, you know, behind the the scene, behind this, you know, the stage setting that we live in, in cities, it's just mind bogglingly vast. and so it is that sort of the hidden, you know, the hidden backstage of the hotel writ large, if you like, um, for most for most modern city dwellers. And, you know, for me, the sort of the fascination when you look at the history of how cities have fed themselves is that you you very rapidly realise that, you know, feeding cities is a really difficult thing to do. <laughs> you know, so you could say that the question of how to feed a city is the core question of urban civilization. Um, And it then strikes me as extraordinary that I was capable of studying architecture for seven years and teaching urban design and and architectural design for 15 years after that. And the food question barely came up, you know, (laughs) Um, because it's so fundamental. Um, And there are many reasons for that that we can go into, if you like. But in the specific case of Rome... As well, actually, say, I don't want mm. I don't want to interrupt you, but maybe before, mm. what are those? Can you can you elaborate on some of those fundamental 
aspects? I mean, if you, yes, I can. Um, I mean, the, okay, so so to get to, to the core principle of the problem, as humans, and, and, you know, I would say that what food does as a lens is it allows you to ask the question, the fundamental question that architects are asking by implication when they design buildings or cities, which is the question of how do we dwell? How do we live well? How do we create a good society and so on? Um, and what food does is it, it it sort of brings in, if you like, the animal element to that question. <laughs> because, I mean, I often use um, Aristotle's term. I mean, Aristotle famously called humans political animals. Um, and if you take that term, what it shows you is that you know, we have different sets of needs, you know, as humans, we're political, that means we're social, that means we have to live in groups, that means we have to sort of, you know, work out how to share well, live well, you know, organise ourselves. But we're also animals, which means that we have a set of needs that come from the natural world, and can only be satisfied by the natural world. Now, if you're a hunter-gatherer, um, or, you know, you live as all our ancestors did, you know, up until 12,000 years ago or, or so, um, you satisfy both of those sets of needs at once because you're living in small groups, so you're living in a, a tight society that's fairly easy to organise, but at the same time you're living directly in nature, in the natural world. So, you know, you're, you're satisfying um, your basic requirements just by, as I often put it, living in the larder, you know, in, in other words, living in a landscape that feeds you directly. Once we start living in cities, and of course, it's a hugely, hugely complex, drawn out process of how we started to farm and m move into urban centres and build cities and, and live statically. And, you know, it, it is, as I say, the history of urban civilization with all the complexity that comes from it. But something that comes out of it is that the duality that I just spoke about, that we're political and, and animals, then starts manifesting itself as a problem, which I call the urban paradox. So the urban paradox is that the more we live in cities, which we do in order to maximise our social potential, you know, I mean, it's wonderful to be able to sort of stroll down the road and listen to a symphony orchestra playing Bach or whatever, the further and further away we get from our sources of sustenance. And it's a paradox because there's no ideal solution to this, because basically, as I say, if you want the social stuff, then nature just by definition gets further away. And the more you want, you try to sort of bring the nature in, then the less density of population you have and the less society you have. And I would say that question of how do you solve the urban paradox lies at the heart, basically, of most utopian thinking. You know, so utopianism, the question of how to live well, how to build build a good society. As I noticed when I started studying utopianism for my first book, Hungry City, it has this question implied all the way through it. You know, how do we how do we inhabit a landscape? How do we organize society? But also how do we make sure we can feed ourselves at the same time? So it's it was there in plain sight all along. It's just that nobody had prior, you know, to my understanding, prior to my light bulb moment of 23 years ago now, of seeing you can address all of this through the lens of food, because of course food is what binds us together socially, but also binds us to the natural world. But it was there in plain sight all along, because as I say, if you look at all the great utopian models from the Greeks through Thomas More to the Garden City and so on, it's, it's there. Food is just central to the questioning all the way through.
Yeah. And I, as you mentioned, it's not a contemporary challenge. And this no. is what it, what, what makes your, your book, um, Hungry City, um, such an interesting read. And I would highly recommend for those in the audience that have not, um, read the book that they, um, pick it up and go to Amazon, order it. Um, it certainly gave me a very different perspective on thinking about cities. But let's talk a little bit about ancient Rome because mm. again, Rome arrived at a scale in antiquity that competes with our contemporary. Um, cities, certainly mm. not maybe our mega cities, but it was a large city um, in antiquity and it had to contest with the challenges that you're speaking about right now. So uh, tell us a little bit about how ancient Rome fed itself and what we can learn from that. Yes, I mean, this is one of my favorite subjects. <laughs> um, and, and the reason is that Rome is absolutely fascinating because if you think about the difficulty of feeding a city in the pre-industrial world, let alone the ancient world, it's hugely complex, as I said. So basically, you know, the food, the, the, the food of cities is grain. It's always been grain. And this is why, you know, cities and agriculture, and I am oversimplifying a very complex evolutionary process, but nevertheless, Grain has always been the key food of cities, the staple food, because it can be grown in excess, um, stored fairly easily, you know, and, and, and preserved so it can sort of feed, feed a non-food producing population through the course of a year, for example. Now, most ancient cities were small for the obvious reason that if you think about it, you know, the problem of how to feed a city Problem number one is how to produce the food. Well, farm and produce grain is the answer to that one. That's the shorthand. Problem number two, how do I get the food into the city? Now, if you think about grain, it's very heavy and bulky in relation to its value. You know, you basically a loaf of bread compared to, a, a you know, a sort of a, a pate of fish or something has always been quite cheap. And yet it's the most important food. So how do I get it into the city over, you know, many miles and so on? And the answer is with great difficulty. And for that reason, most ancient cities were small. And indeed, the Greeks, when they talk about the problem of how to feed the city, you know, explicitly, one of the things they say is that we have to keep the city small so that it can be you know, fed by its surrounding countryside. I mean, I often call it the, the fried egg model of urbanity, where if you think the yolk of the egg, uh, is the the city and the white of the egg is the countryside around it feeding it. You know, this is the utopian ideal which comes from the Greek polis or city-state. So in the case of Rome, what we see happening is that the city is, is actually not on the coast, but it's close enough to the sea to be able to use sea transport to bring the food in. Um, and because Rome, you know, was a sort of militaristic um, society in the first place, uh, with expansionist tendencies, shall I say, you know, from very, very early on. So, you know, from the second century BC, it was conquering neighbouring territories like Sicily and Sardinia, and then later North Africa, and then very famously Egypt, um, in order to get its hands on their grain reserves, you know. Um, and it, what it did was it exported farmers with military backup, um, so that these places could effectively become its, you know, indentured food producing regions. And to get the grain into the city, it was doable simply because, as I say, um, river transport or sea transport was much, much easier and cheaper, um, as indeed it would still be today. I mean, we still ship stuff all over the world, you know, for the reason that it's much, it's much easier than sort of trundling it over land. Um, roughly 50 times cheaper, it's been estimated. So... It was actually cheaper for Rome to get its grain from North Africa than it would have been for it to transport it overland 
from 20 miles, you know, in its own hinterland. And this had profound consequences. I mean, not only did it mean that Rome grew to a far, far greater size, as you said, I mean, it had a million citizens by the first century AD, which is way, way bigger than any other city had ever been before. In fact, you know, the only cities to rival it um, in the pre-industrial world were um, a handful of medieval Chinese capitals, you know, 1300 years later, which also expanded effectively into, you know, the country countryside through military um, oppression. Um, and then 19th century London was the next city to be that big. So th- we're talking mega big. Um, but there were huge consequences for this. So, you know, the, the, the feeding of the citizens was political. So basically, you know, there the weren't kind of, as it were, market mechanisms for people to buy their own food. And instead, what the government did is it just gave people a grain dole. It fed them directly. Uh, and this was a grain dole known as the Ananar. So about a third of the Rome citizens were fed with this. And not just that. But so like all- a, sorry, like a government subsidy. Of, free of handout. Free yeah. handout. Here's your yeah. bread. I mean, have you ever heard of the term bread and circuses? keep keeping the citizenry quiet you feed them and you entertain them and and then they're happy and then they don't give you any trouble so that's the basic premise so free grain free oil free wine you know i mean and it was hugely expensive and it became the overriding problem for the for the emperors you know successive emperors is keeping this thing going because i mean the infrastructure required was enormous ostia which was rome's port was had had 30,000 citizens, which was frankly a very big city for those days in any case, you know, and it's just the port funneling in all this stuff. And of course, you know, you're taking, you know, effectively extracting nutrients from a huge area. I mean, the whole of the Mediterranean, the North Atlantic coast, the Black Sea were all feeding Rome. And so the locals might have been a bit resentful of this and thought, well, I would quite like to keep some of my grain or my oil for myself. Thank you very much. So, of course, you know, it had to be sort of done on a military basis, you know, with fortifications and backup and the threat of, um, you know, reprisals if if there was any problem in the in the supply. Um, So you're talking about a sort of an absolutely extraordinary, you know, logistical problem, um, which Tacitus actually reckoned cost the city one fifth of all its revenue, just 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 bringing all this food into the city. And of course, you know, many, and and again, the reason I find Rome so fascinating to look at is there are so many fascinating parallels with the way we feed ourselves today. You know, for example, the shipping lanes were kept, uh, they were subsidised so that the people bringing the food in were basically subsidised to keep the cost down, which is effectively what we've been doing with aviation fuel for years. Um, You know, the, 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 the citizens would basically riot if there was any threat to the food supply. You know, so, you know, basically all, as I say, all the emperors, although they, the last thing they wanted to be doing was, you know, being responsible for feeding people, they recognised how, how important it was. And last but not least, the fact that the city was sucking in all these nutrients from a long way away, but not putting anything back meant that the areas that were feeding Rome, which were many hundreds of miles away, eventually became salinated or the soil quality was reduced. So so it was actually a massive ecological problem as well. And and one last thing I'd love to mention, because this to me is the most fascinating of all in a way, because the main staple foods that fed Rome were being grown hundreds of miles away, local farmers were able to concentrate on 
high value luxury food growing, which was known as Pastio Volatica or villa farming. So it was kind of fruit and vegetables, it was pond fish, it was dormice stuffed with hazelnuts, it was songbirds, you know, all the kind of crazy foods that, you know, the, the posh Romans like to eat, you know, for feasts and, and all of that sort of thing. And many commentators at the time found this very, you know, morally reprehensible. You know, so the poet Marshall, for example, says, you know, Rome used to feed itself and import roses from Egypt. And now all we grow is roses and all our bread comes from Egypt. You know, so this sense that somehow the, the city was not supporting itself properly and, you know, that it was actually uh, in a sense morally decadent because it, it didn't grow its, its own food uh, was 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 present, you know, and and if again, if you flash forward to now, you know, and you think what a city like London actually grows itself, well, we've got a few vertical farms with a few high end micro herbs in it. Go figure, you know, is the pattern repeating itself all over again? Yes, because in your book you actually draw direct parallels between, um, let's say, Rome and then your own city of London, right? Both yeah. in scale and in terms of like the food production networks that you're describing, mm. um, and and certainly now that has even become more complex because we are essentially not only producing and consuming food regionally, but we're doing so globally, right? Um, And maybe this is a good segue into your your current book, um, Cytopia, How Food Can Save the World, because (laughs) in this book, really, it challenges um, the idea that food should be produced and consumed on a a mass scale. Um, But Maybe maybe we could start with the simple question is, what is Cytopia, Carolyn? Yes, yes. Uh, well, thank you for, for, for bringing that up. I mean, basically, um, Cytopia, with, with an S, um, it means food place from the Greek sitos for food and topos for place. Um, and it's a word I invented probably about 18 years ago now, actually, because it was towards the end of writing, again, my first book, Hungry City, and as I mentioned earlier, I was actually researching utopia, uh, which of course means, well, here's the thing, utopia, um, the U in utopia can either come from the Greek word for good, which is spelled E-U, or the Greek word for no, which is O-U. So utopia is a good place that doesn't exist. <laughs> and I remember, and the reason I was researching it is I was you know, trying to introduce my final chapter of Hungry City by looking at our greatest tradition of thinking in a multidisciplinary way about how we should live. And I realised, I came up against this, to me, you know, deeply worrying, depressing fact, which is that that tradition was, you know, basically trying to create an an image of a good society, which, because it aimed at perfection, couldn't exist. And I had discovered, as I mentioned earlier, that all utopians talk endlessly about food, they just never sort of put food centre frame. You know, they talk about farming, they talk about the landscape, they talk about sharing societies and all the rest of it, communal meals. I mean, Thomas More goes on and on about communal vegetable growing competitions and things like that. But but they never put food, they never join all those bits up to say, oh, actually, we could do all this through food. And, and that, I guess, was my idea, was that actually, yes, we can, you know, because food shapes our lives, it shapes our bodies, our minds, our homes, our cities, our landscapes, our economy, our politics, our climate. And in other words, everything that matters to us in life, and it connects it all together. So, and it shapes, as I say, our whole world. 
So we can use food as a kind of practical alternative to utopia, to thinking about all the questions that we need to address, you know, in the modern world. And we already live in Sotopia. In, in other words, we already live in a food-shaped world. We just live in a bad one because we don't value food. And so how, how, how can we make a better one? You say we live in a bad one. Yeah. Um, why is it bad? And how can we make it? <laughs> And how can we make it better? Yeah, because as I briefly mentioned, um, you know, we're Rome too. <laughs> you know, we we live in powerful- oh, like like Rome Rome two point oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> or three point oh, <laughs> exactly. Okay. We're Rome two point oh. We import food from places we don't see that are out of sight and out of mind. We've externalized the true cost of food production. I mean, there's so much, I mean, this is a hugely complex, long story, but, you know, the shorthand is, um, you know, that the people thought they were solving the problem of how to, to eat and how to feed the cities. You know, when we the railways came to begin with, this kind of emancipated cities from geography for the first time because it allowed food to be transported rapidly over long distances. This led to a complete explosion in the growth of cities. And at the same time, the railways opened up vast areas of, for example, the New World, aka, you know, Midwest America, Australia, Brazil, um, where it had, you know, had been sort of millions of acres of, uh, or hectares, or your preferred kind of nomenclature for area, um, of grassland, you know, in the case of uh, the Midwest in America, uh, being grazed by bison and obviously inhabited by Native Americans, um, the bison was slaughtered, the Native Americans were either slaughtered or removed, and this allowed, you know, the, the world's first vast monocultural grain field to be created, um, which, again, created the illusion of cheap food, because, the, you know, for the first time in history, there were just mountains and mountains of grain, which then got fed to animals, because, the, you know, to cows explicitly, because there was, uh, you know, more grain than anyone knew what to do with for the first time. And so we get the invention of cheap meat, you know, cheap factory meat, which also doesn't exist. And last but not least, uh, the discovery of which chemicals plants need for growth. So nitrogen, potassium, phosphorus, which was then somebody, well, two German chemists called Harbour and Bosch invented a, a way of artificially fixing nitrogen in the atmosphere to create ammonia, which is where we get our nitrogenous fertilizers from. Um, and actually 40 to 50% of the global population today wouldn't be here without these artificial fertilizers. But the problem is by chucking chemicals on the ground, you interrupt natural you know, processes by which plants get nutrients from the soil and you destroy the living soil. And famously, Rachel Carson, Carson wrote her book in 1956, called Silent Spring about how the pesticides. So the plants get sick because they're not getting the proper nutrients because feeding plants NPK is like feeding your kids fast food. You know, they, they grow <laughs> bigger, but they're not actually being properly nourished. So the plants get sick. So they're more vulnerable to disease. So you have to chuck fungicides and pesticides on them. Then you kill all the beneficial microbes in the soil. You kill the soil. You know, it, it's kind of like a sort of death loop. Um, so you've got lots of grain and it looks great, but it's got very low nutritional value in it. In fact, we were just talking about it before we went on air about how this has now sort of come to Guatemala, where you are. Um, and, you know, and all the costs of this so-called cheap food are externalized and they're killing us and they're killing the planet is the shorthand. 
Wow, you said you said a lot in that answer, actually, <laughs> Carolyn. Um, well, and, 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 and in a, <laughs> and in a way, <laughs> and in a way, it's true. You've hit on mm-hmm. our fundamental theme. I mean, we cannot survive without food. But now, our food networks and our productions are vast. They're at a global scale. They impact all of our lives. But uh, you know, we're coming to the kind of middle of the of the show, so we're going to take a quick break. And I think when uh, we return, what we're going to try to do is speak um, maybe about some contemporary ways that, as architects, urban designers, we can think about our uh, the creation of more sustainable urban patterns. Um, but also, I think we're going to delve into some of your practical advice, because while you really lay the complex structure um, that feeds our cities today, you also offer some practical advice of what we can do individually or within our communities to maybe um, make a small impact and enough small impacts may make larger impacts or at least or at least get familiar with the questions that we need to be asking um, and really the consciousness that we be, need to begin to have when food arrives at our plate. We need to at least ask where it's coming from. So don't miss the second half of this conversation with Carolyn. We'll be right back in just a few minutes. Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. Did you know that the quality of our daily lives is directly influenced by the design of our built environment? Our homes, our work, the way we move, and where we play are all shaped by the design of our cities. This thought-provoking new show from architect, urban designer, and educator, Carrie Pennebod examines the complex forces that shape the making of our physical world. Lively conversations with leading experts in a variety of fields engage some of the greatest challenges facing our cities today, including climate change, affordable housing, embedded technologies, infrastructure design, architecture and the arts, urban policy, social mobility, and much, much more. Tune in every Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time, so that together we can design a better world. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa. Play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Welcome back to On Cities with Carrie Pennebon. We hope you're enjoying today's episode. Now back to the show with Carrie. 
Thank you. We are uh, back with Carolyn Steele, and she is really a, a formidable thinker on the relationship of food and cities. And right prior to the break, we were really laying out some of the complexities of feeding our contemporary cities. And um, Carolyn, I was curious during the break, I was thinking about all the challenges you laid out, particularly as it relates to the mega cities. Um, so, so what what is what should our urban futures look like? I mean, if you ruled the world, Carolyn, like what would you put in place? If what would yeah. you put in place to think about how we can create more, you know, sustainable contemporary urban patterns? Do we have to mm. do we have to abandon the megacities? Um, is there a new model for a garden city? What have mm. you learned and what could you share with us? Um, I, I mean, that's it's a very big and important question. And I mean, what I would say is that, you know, after about 150 years of pretty much um, ignoring what I would call the urban paradox, in other words, allowing cities, as you say, to grow bigger and bigger and bigger, like kind of overstuffed hamsters um, and just kind of using ever more efficient technology to keep keep the show on the road we're kind of hitting the buffers now. You know, in other words, we're realising this model is a busted flush. Um, and so that does raise a very, very big question of what do we do next? I mean, to me, as I say, I mean, having discovered the centrality of food in not only, you know, our personal lives, in other words, I don't know about you, but, you know, one of my great sources of joy is thinking about food, cooking, wondering what to have for dinner, eating with friends and so on. Um you know, it's actually this amazing social and ecological tool. And ultimately, it determines not only socially and politically, but also spatially how we live. Um, and so I would say thing one is we have to put food back at the heart of our thinking. So it's no longer this thing over there that somebody else has solved. It's actually it's an unsolved, massive problem that we have to address, both individually and as societies as well. Thing two we have to end this idea that food can be cheap. Because if you think about it, food consists of living things that we kill so we can live. That's what food is. Food is life. So if you cheapen food, guess what you're doing? You're cheapening life. So clearly we can't build our idea of a good life around this idea that food can be cheap. It can't. So what implications does that have? It, it actually, I mean, the exciting thing to me is that it not only sort of shows you very, very clearly what's wrong with, with megacities in, in general, you know, the fact that they're so far away, you know, their impact is so vast, as I say, Rome point, you know, 2.0, but also the fact that they're not creating good environments for human beings to live in anyway, because we're political animals and we need access to nature. So um, in a sense, what we have to do is we have to value food, put it at the heart of our thinking again, and then look at the landscapes that we have and see how we can convert them into what I call landscapes for human and non-human flourishing. Um, and what I mean by that is, you know, in the, the, there's, I mean, one of, the, one of the hopeful things, as I say, and I'm going to quote the late, great David Graeber on this one, you know, David Graeber, you know, the wonderful sort of anarchist and activist and author of books like The Dawn of Everything and so on with David Wengrow, uh, and also the wonderful book Bullshit Jobs. And I'm not paid to be his agent, don't worry. But I mean, I just think, you know, his, his insight that, 
you know, society is man-made and therefore it can be remade is a really important thing to hold in our heads. So whatever we've done up till now can be redone. And if you look at a, at a mega city, you know, or, or the landscapes we've created so far, I think there are three key things we can do to change them. The first is we can post-fit existing cities with nature and food production. So if you take a city like Tokyo, which has 38 million inhabitants or something insane, I mean, one of the extraordinary things is that Tokyo actually has about 15 neighbourhood farms in the city. How come? Because in 1952, there was an act passed that protected farms in the city. And so when the city grew, there were these little patches of land that just remained as farms, you know, despite whatever the market forces might say. Um, and that shows you the power of planning. You know, I mean, planning, if you like, as a kind of is a safety guard against capitalism, unbridled capitalism. So even if market rents, say, a piece of land could earn, I don't know how many millions if you stick a tower block on it, planning can say, yes, but there's a greater social benefit to having a farm. So we actually have to reintroduce visionary planning. And we can do that to post-fit cities as well, because as you know, I mean, so particularly in Japan, actually, buildings get demolished in cities all the time, or they become redundant, you know, car parks might, you know, get not be needed anymore, and so on. That is an opportunity to bring nature and, and farming back into the city, because the benefits far outweigh, you know, what the apparent sort of financial gain is. It's not just about feeding the city, it's actually about reconnecting city dwellers with, with the fact of what food is and actually giving people the opportunity to, to get engaged in food growing, which is a mindset changer. So that's thing one. Thing two is looking at urban expansion as it's currently happening. And for example, Africa would be you know a key continent to look at in this context because it's predicted to be the great expansionist continent over the next century. Um, we need to do what Ebenezer Howard proposed with the Garden City and indeed Patrick Geddes, the father of regional geography, proposed as well, which is to preserve uh, countryside as the city is growing. So you actually end up with either a star-shaped city, as Patrick Geddes was proposing, or cities of limited size surrounded by green belts, as, as Ebenezer Howard was proposing. I mean, which, of course, is effectively reproducing what I call the fried egg, which is you know, you don't allow the city to just keep expanding without putting in bands of countryside or ribbons of countryside so that you preserve this kind of relationship between the city and the country. So, you know, planning employed in, in, the, in the development of future cities. Um, and the third thing is basically uh, taxation, you know, and, and in, in relation to planning. So you can essentially, as I say, um, value food as a society, which means internalizing the true cost of food production. Now, this is a real biggie, because what it means is foods that cheap food will no longer exist, but it doesn't exist anyway, as I keep saying. It's just we're paying the cost of it through climate change, pollution, diet-related disease, you know, uh, great mass extinctions, etc. We're just paying an unaffordable price external to the price we actually pay for a, an item of food in the shop. Um, and so if we internalize a true cost of food, we also clearly then need tax reform so people can afford to eat well. But what it means is it, it sort of evens out the playing field. It means that growing food cl close to or within cities again or in the region of a city 
makes financial sense again because those costs are going to be much lower than the cost of flying your bananas halfway around the world or whatever it is. You know, so it starts to create an economic landscape that starts to feed into the planned landscape that we might actually want to create in any case, which, as I say, is maximising the urban-rural interface in order to create landscapes for human and non-human flourishing. Well, you know, what you said is particularly poignant. Even last night, I was speaking with my good friends here, and I'm speaking to you from Guatemala City, and we were discussing this because this is a country that produces corn, but at the moment is importing most of its corn due to American subsidies, right? And um, so that corn is much cheaper. So what you're discussing in a way in your answer um, is that um, we, we the physical impacts of our cities, right? How we will build them in the future. And I think you talked about retrofitting the mega city, right? Mm. With Greenscape, but also mm. thinking about developing or or a kind of new vision for the garden city. Um, I think you're also talking about these invisible frameworks, which have to do with economic models, you know, yeah. international trading agreements, yeah. for example, yeah. that yeah. we think might have no physical impacts on the city, mm -hmm. but in fact, they do because they affect the farmers, they affect the extent to which our city grows, they affect our access to food. So I think yeah. what it's telling me is that as as a designers, you know, we need to become more aware of these invisible networks and play a more active role in speaking about them. Um, so I, I think mm -hmm. I think there there was a lot that you said in that answer. Um, maybe you know, <clears throat> you wrote your book, a Cytopia. Cytopia was launched really at the at the, at, at the yeah. beginning of the pandemic. Um, and so I was curious, in your opinion, did the pandemic have any lasting effects on local food systems um, mm. or our idea of thinking about food in cities? Mm. Yeah, no, I mean, <laughs> again, uh, that's such an interesting question. I mean, um, yeah, Cytopia, my second book actually came out, it was literally came out the week the global pandemic was declared, <laughs> which, as you can imagine, at the time was, uh, you know, felt a bit sad because my entire book tour got cancelled. But then, of course, the world came back via Zoom. And, of course, here we are now treating, talking to someone the other side of the world on your computer screen as something that's totally normal, uh, which is quite extraordinary. But, I mean, I, I found um, the process of you know, thinking about these kinds of questions of how can we use food to reimagine a good life, which I guess is is really what I'm trying to do with Cytopia. You know, I'm trying to help, help give people, as it were, the gift of food as a medium for thinking and acting in order to really question how we should live well in the 21st century and how we can live well. And, and the good news is I really believe we can live well. And, and then the lockdown was such an interesting lens through which to sort of be addressing all of those kinds of questions, because, of course, as with any major crisis, you know, what you're seeing is a disruption of, you know, life as normal. Um, and that gives people time and space to think. Uh, and indeed, um, of course, lockdown gave many people lucky enough to live in with the kinds of homes and to have the kinds of jobs that allowed them to work from home it explicitly gave them time and space, you know, and then a lot of people thought, hmm, I quite like having time and space. I'm not sure I'm going to go back to, you know, the rat race when the thing's over. So this in itself is very, very significant and interesting, I think. And it's clearly a long lasting uh, phenomenon that, that many 
you know, sort of city uh, designers and and indeed economists and planners are really puzzling over is, you know, sort of what, what the new reality is. And I don't think we can see that clearly yet. I mean, in terms of food, obviously, um, there was also massive disruption. I think we all saw the panic buying, the supermarket shelves being swept clean, um, you know, and, and in a way what it did is it exposed um, the, the deep fragility, actually, of the modern food system, which is normally invisible to us because, you know, supermarkets are filled, you know, on a just-in-time basis. I mean, yet another thing I didn't say about Rome is that Rome was also fed on a just-in-time basis. You know, there were only ever about two weeks' worth of food supply in this in this enormous ancient city. So yet another parallel with today. Um, and of course, you know, people people hoarded and they panicked and so on. And actually, I, I think, you know, the, the, the global system reacted very impressively. I mean, you know, in other words, you know, the, the food supplies did come back. But what was more impressive and more interesting to me is that what didn't, you know, the, the, the local, what didn't, the, the, the networks that didn't run out of food were the local networks. So the supermarkets are not built to withstand any kind of shock, but... You know, if I went to my local shop down the road, it still had plenty of fresh food and so on, because it, it was operating on totally different networks, which are more to do with smaller scale producers, more local, more seasonal and, and fed by a more filigree kind of set of connections. And of course, those became the great feeders of, of local neighbourhoods. You know, so I mean, in the UK, I, I don't know, I'd be fascinated to know whether the same thing happened in the US. I, I know to a certain extent it did, you know, sort of restaurants, pubs, you know, sort of places that didn't normally act as food hubs actually became local food hubs and brought in food from local producers who maybe normally sort of sold their food directly to restaurants, but the restaurants were all shut. So they had all this produce they couldn't get rid of. And within days, I mean, actually days, new, you know, uh, sites were growing, put, going on the internet where you could go in and sort of say, I live here and I need bread or I, I've got eggs to sell, who wants them? And this extraordinary growth of local, you know, direct sales from farmers to, to consumers um, took place, which I just thought, I got so excited. I thought, wow, you know, the revolution's coming, you know, because one of the things I argue for in the book is much more direct selling between producers and consumers, you know, because basically all the money in the food system as you know probably is is in the middle is in the supermarkets and the big players who just suck out all the profit and the farmers get paid almost nothing and and even though food is quote unquote cheap um we're still paying more for food that good food than we need to much more um in general so that that filled me with hope and and i think many of the um the effects of that still exist in other words i do know people who never bought directly from small-scale producers before, and they still are now because that connection was made. And actually many small producers I know say that, you know, they, they have maintained some of the uptick in their kind of direct sales. But the downside is that, you know, uh, uh, the, the sort of the revolution that I think was possible um, hasn't really been, if you like, sort of adopted to the extent that it could have been, in my view, by politicians. And, and indeed, this rush to the countryside that we saw, you know, in other words, the great resignation and people were kind of wanting to live the good life in the country, make their own sourdough, which, of course, was another of the great cliches. You know, everyone was making sourdough, including myself. You know, I do. I was arguing in the book for all of these things. This is the irony. This was what was really weird. And people kept writing to me and talking to me and saying, 
did you know the COVID was going to happen? And I went, well, no, but I did know that some zoonotic pandemic was on its way because of the way we farm. So I think there is still what COVID exposed is the possibility of a completely different idea of a good life. And we saw some of the uh, some of the sort of the building blocks of it. More time, less commuting, you know, more time, sort of more space, more access to nature, closeness to nature, more individual skills so that you can kind of make your own bread, you can grow your own food and more sort of lo local networking and more regional networking. So, you, you know, you actually get to know your local producers and all of those things, you know, that those were in place. But I don't see what I what I see lacking in its sense, and this directly addresses your question of what would you do if you ruled the world. I would build my new model of a good life around those things, you know, because I think those are the seeds of this alternative good life that we need. That is predicated on getting our pleasure from non-consumerist based things, but just having more time to spend with people we love, doing more meaningful things like baking bread or making furniture or whatever it is. Closeness to nature, which, of course, is more available if you're living in the countryside explicitly. Um, and so it's a rebalancing of the of, of city and country um, and, and just a sort of more regional, locally based uh, society in general, which, of course, has huge political and economic implications. Well, maybe, um, you know, in listening to you, uh, in listening to your answer, I'm thinking about how one of the greatest legacies, in my opinion, of the pandemic or the post-pandemic world is really the way in which we work, right? And so, um, because we now can work in a more decentralized way. Um, yeah. And as a result, you know, to your point, let's say something as simple as transportation on a daily basis, if you no mm. longer have to be in traffic for three hours a day, say an hour and a half in the morning, an hour and a half in the afternoon, mm -hmm. you can work a little bit more remotely, then, then yes, you can spend some time, you know, actually cooking your own meal or exactly. doing, doing some of the things that you're suggesting. Um, and then of course, we need to question the way in which our suburbs, at least in America, can embrace, you know, more sustainable urban models so that we can live in a more, again, polycentric city. But yeah. I think, you know, the time that we got back, um, because we're working in a more flexible way, I think could time be- Time was the big one. Time was yeah. the big one well spent. Um, and I will share just anecdotally that in Miami, where I was in the pandemic, you know, we went often daily to a local cafe that was at the bottom of our office space. And we went there daily, we knew the family. And um, in any case, when everything shut down, they wanted to keep their employees um, really yeah. working. And what they did is they took all of their contacts with the local farmers and then all their contacts with their, um, let's say, local customers. And they created a new network, to use your term, where they mm. were basically you know, you would order uh, now not from a cafe, but now from this informal market. And they yes. would come to your door with boxes of fresh local produce. And I can tell yeah. you, Carolyn, I feel that I had a carrot, a true carrot for the first <laughs> time, for yeah. the first time yeah. in my life. Yes. I mean, and I mean, so there's nothing not, not to like, is there? I mean, that, no, that is no. the creation of a good Zootopia, you see. That is the creation of a good Zootopia. I mean, it's important to say, of course, that not everybody had the luxury of working at home and indeed still doesn't. Of course. 
But my vision is that more and more people should have that opportunity because, of course, a lot of key workers, you know, they're, they're, they're forced to go and, you know, work in cities, but often can't afford to live in the city centre. And they're, so they're the ones shuttling back and forth. If we do decentralise our world, uh, which I do believe we, we, we need to do in order to live more sustainably, um, because, you know, the travelling aspect is, is, a, is a big part of, you know, the way we were sort of chomping through energy. Um, it would actually mean that far more people would have the opportunity of having more time. I mean, you know, time is something that capitalism basically steals from us. You know, I mean, Benjamin Franklin's infamous quote, you know, time is money, which is one of the most destructive things anybody's ever said, because actually time is life. <laughs> You know, so we need to get money out of the equation as well. We need to create, and this is why we need land reform and tax reform, and we're going to have to chat again, in a, you know, because these are big, big issues that I'm raising here. But, you know, my vision is that everybody, you know, is given um, the wherewithal to, you know, lead in a way a sort of more independent, highly skilled life with greater agency around the, the, the core issue of food. So we're coming to the last sort of two minutes of the conversation. And I agree. I think I'm going to have to have you back, Carolyn, so we can continue this discussion. But I'm going to highly recommend that those in the audience that have not read your books, please go out there and read them. I think they will provoke new ways of thinking. But maybe in a sentence or two, could you tell me what you feel is your favorite city and why mm. as we conclude? Wow. Well, that's highly political, of course, because I was born and bred in central London. So I can't really choose any city other than London. And I have to say, apart from Brexit, and that really is another hour <laughs> we won't have now, um, I do love my city. I mean, I love its variety. I love its its slight craziness and anarchy. Um, famously, there's never been a greater London, you know, and there was a greater London brand, but I mean, the centre of the city is just, has just evolved as it evolved. You know, it's very organic. Um, it's very diverse. Um, and there's a huge amount of culture and history and, and just, you know, urban life at its very, very best. Well, so I, <laughs> having, having been in London uh, several times, I, um, it's an extraordinary city. And I want to thank you, Carolyn, for taking the time to join me today and for this thought-provoking conversation. You really gave me a lot to think about. And I hope that our listeners will also think more about the food that they eat and how it gets there and how we can partake in a more informed conversation about the future of our cities. Next week, I'm going to be joined by the historian Michelangelo Sabatini. We're going to be talking about the myths of modernity. Don't miss it. If you've um, liked what you've heard, please listen to our previous episodes on Spotify, Apple, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcast. And please follow us on the On Cities podcast in Instagram. Thank you again for your wonderful work, Carolyn. And I will see everyone next week. Great pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to On Cities with Carrie Pennebod. We hope today's episode has given you some insight into how the design of the built environment shapes the quality of our lives. Please join us again next week 